0: Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Saturday, June the 3rd, 2023. On this edition of The Politocrat, your kingdom for a living wage. Three speeches and observations. All of that and more coming up next. And a very good Saturday to you on this brand new edition of the Police Credit Daily Podcast. Yours truly, Omar Moore here, welcoming you aboard. Happy Saturday, or wherever you may be. It may be a different day of the week that you listen to this, but wherever you are in the world, I do hope that your day is going well. Yes, indeed, Saturday is here. It's the 3rd of June. My goodness me. I can hardly believe that we're already in June, but we are. I can tell you, though, that a lot of this episode will be in Friday if you will, because you're going to be hearing some speeches that took place on Friday that you really must listen to. I think they're very important ones. They are in the context of United States politics. You'll be hearing from President Biden. He goes to make a rare Oval Office address. It's his first, by the way, from the Oval Office since he's been in the White House just over two years now. It's almost two and a half years that President Biden's been in the White House. It's amazing how time has gone quickly. I'll be talking before that speech occurs about some of President Biden's accomplishments and uh, I'll I'll talk about that in a few minutes time. And also I'll be talking about, well, I'll be playing you as well, two other speeches that took place almost at the same time or thereabouts just after President Biden finished speaking. Um, Two speeches from Nashville, Tennessee, Reverend William Barber and Bernie Sanders, the senator out of Vermont. Both of them, are conducting a nationwide tour, which I think is quite effective by the sounds of things. And this day, that would be yesterday, Friday, saw them, um, this particular day, which was yesterday, saw them in Nashville, Tennessee. And the Tennessee House of Representative Justin Jones, had uh, occasion to speak yesterday. And I'm not going to play his speech, but I will be playing you the speeches of both the Reverend William J. Barber, he of the Moral Mondays, really good and very important figure in the fight for poor people. The Poor People's Campaign is the, also the organization that he runs as well. And then you'll be hearing from Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, the Democrat, who, of course, ran for president in 2016 and in 2020, and in both instances got stiffed by the Democratic Party, let's face it. Um, But the bottom line is, is that now Bernie Sanders is very much in the Democratic fold as someone who um, caucuses with the Democrats, has done that ever since he's been in the United States Senate, as an independent from Vermont, And, of course, he is the chairman of the uh, uh, Pension Committee, the Labor and Pensions Committee in the Senate. So that's what you need to know about Bernie. And you'll be hearing from him later on as well. I think these are two significant speeches from both William Barber, the Reverend William Barber, and from Senator Bernie Sanders. But before we get there and before we get to President Biden's speech um, at the Oval Office, again, his first in the Oval Office Uh, in his presidency, I want to play you a couple of things on a more local level here in San Francisco. The first clip you're going to be hearing, and you'll know who it is immediately, okay? And that is from an appearance at the Castro Theater here in San Francisco. That would have been on Thursday night, June the 1st. You're going to hear that clip first. I'll come back and then I'll talk a bit about that clip.
1: The list of causes that actor and activist Jane Fonda has championed throughout her life is very long. KCBS's Megan Goldsby reports she touched on two of them in particular in front of a sold-out crowd at the Castro Theater last night. It was the first night of Pride Month and we were in the Castro Theater so the topic Fonda was asked about first was her long-held support of the LGBTQ community and what activists should do in the face of a fresh set of political attacks. You, You think, well, if we tell them the truth we let them know what's really this all means of course they're going to agree with us no it's not a sprint then I thought well it's a marathon but you know what it is it's a relay race we'll be passing it on as we go But the fight to save the climate does need to be a sprint, she says. Her PAC's goal is to get Democrats out of office if they don't help stop oil companies, both nationally and in state races. Every time there's a really good bill that would stop big oil in California, those damn Democrats, they stop it. Gavin Newsom doesn't exactly fight for it either, I might add. In the Castro, Megan Goldsby, KCBS.
0: And Jane Fonda is 100% correct. That was KCBS radio here in San Francisco. On Friday, talking about the Thursday event at the Castro Theater here in San Francisco. And Jane Fonda was there to talk about the important things in life. And not just about that, but, the, you know, about the things that you heard in the report. And Jane Fonda there talking to someone there, is just telling you the truth about what's going on. Yes, there's Democrats here in California, but that doesn't mean that they're doing the right thing all the time. And most of them are moderate conservatives. They're moderates or they're conservative Democrats. Some of them are more on the progressive side. But the bottom line, dear listener, is that, yeah, you you get Gavin Newsom, who is the governor here, as you know, in California, who blocks these things as well. And some of these Democrats here, they're very moderate. A lot of them are. And so, yeah, you would be hoping and you'd be lobbying them to do the right thing. But no, then they stop these bills going through or they aid some pipeline. I mean, just case in point, this debt ceiling extension, right? So the, these things are really uh, very important. And I'm glad she did call out the governor because here in California, yeah, Gavin Newsom sometimes does some stuff that makes your, your head just shake, really, really does. But again, um As she said, in her words, these damn Democrats, you know, stop this stuff from going forward. So sometimes you're also fighting against people in the party that you tend to vote for. So, you know, that's the thing. This is why I say um, people keep talking about left versus right. This isn't about left versus right. I keep saying this. this is about what's right versus what is wrong. And that's what it is. If we drop these labels, oh I'm a Democrat, oh I'm a Republican, or oh, I'm a progressive, or oh, I'm a conservative if we were to just drop those labels and stop using that and just define ourselves by voting for what's right and what's wrong and identifying ourselves as people who, who are humane versus people out there who are not humane I mean that's what this is really about who is humane and who is not, who is indecent versus who is indecent Who is decent versus who is indecent. That's what this is about. It's not about left versus right. Because that's an easy way to divide people and point fingers and bicker. It's just so much easier to just boil it right down. When you get right down to it, that's what this is. It's about who's decent and who's not. Who's hateful and who isn't. Who's immoral and who isn't. That's what this is about. It's not about one party versus another, because both parties are part of a system. And one party goes only so far, and the other one wants to make sure that you really don't vote at all. I mean, that's really what this is about. Really, this is what it's about. But I'm so glad that Jane Fonda said that, at least that clip. God knows what else she said. I would have loved to have been at the Castro Theatre on Thursday, June 1, 2023, to find out. But by the time I found out about this event, it was too late. Same thing with Margaret Cho, who is a comedian and satirist. And, you know, I didn't know that she was here in town. And literally, I could have been in, I could have literally gone and seen her. But I just stumbled, literally stumbled upon where she is right uh on where she was on on Friday and uh, you know too late you know loads of people are too late you know so unfortunately that's two events but anyway the bottom line is is that um what Jane Fonda said there was correct at least i agree with it let me put it that way and yeah i mean we we do have here in california despite having a majority of democrats in the assembly and all that, we do have times where things that could really be game changers, and I hate that expression when used in politics, but things that could really set people free are, not, are getting blocked by Democrats here in California. And that, again, is to me because of what this is, is a system, and the system is only going to give you so much unless you push it to give you, to give you more. And that's what this is, and you've got people who do not want you to have Complete freedom and autonomy. They want to hamshackle you into just getting some crumbs or getting some incrementalism, which I've always been against. But that's what the directive is. It really is. Otherwise, we could have got away from a lot of these problems or if not fixed them. So that's something I wanted to just mention. And I just want to say something else, by the way. Before I talk about President Biden or at least talk about a speech or introduce a speech, President Biden has had a, has got a lot done. You know, you've got people talking nonsense about him tripping over. I mean, who doesn't fall over? Have you ever tripped over in your life before? I know I can hear you now. Well, I'm not the president of the United States. It's not the point. You've tripped over before. So have I. We've all tripped over and fallen down. That's happened to every single one of us on the planet. There isn't a human being alive who hasn't at one point or another tripped over something or fallen down on the ground. I mean, that happens to every single last one of us. So I don't know why on earth there's a big conversation about it over and over and over. And I get it's going to be in Republican ads. But that is not going to be the thing that determines the election. Trust me. It's just not. And while people keep talking about. President Biden tripping over. Let me tell you about. Where President Biden has been very very good. He signed an executive order on gun violence. If you remember that. He's done more to deal with. Executive actions to reduce gun violence. Than any other president. In this same period of time. Two and a half years in. Here's some of the things he's done. Moves as close as possible within existing law to universal background checks. Accelerates implementation of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Increases awareness of red flag laws. Improves support for victims, families, survivors, and impacted communities. Advances firearm and public safety practices through defense acquisition of firearms. Provides the public with more information about firearms dealers and who are violating the law? Advances congressional efforts to prevent proliferation of firearms undetectable by metal detectors. Accelerates federal law enforcement's reporting of ballistics data to catch repeat shooters. Addresses the loss of theft or theft of firearms during shipping. And there's other things about what President Biden's accomplished so far in just about almost two and a half years. On the economy, 13 million new jobs created. Unemployment under 4%, the longest stretch that in more than 50 years. Back in the 1968, 69, I think it was. Manufacturing jobs coming back at the fastest rate in 40 years. The share of working age Americans in the workforce is at its highest level in 16 years. Annual inflation is down for 10 months. Real wages is up over... 10 months now let me tell you something all these people who think that the republicans are somehow better on the economy well they are just hypnotized and they are brainwashed the republicans have never really been better dealing with the economy than the the democrats have the republicans have never really been that good at it and yet there's this meme going around that says oh the democrats are horrible with the economy and nothing could be farther from the truth it's just crazy. I just read you about the things that President Biden's done to change around this economy, and everyone's screaming about recession, including me, years ago, at least a year or so ago, and there's no recession yet. Not yet. So I do think that that's something that needs to be given credit to President Biden on. He needs to be getting the credit. And by the way, his team, and I think I may have said this. In the episode on Thursday, his team i on social media yesterday, his team needs to be putting out ads about the success of President Biden in all these areas, including in the debt ceiling negotiations. You know, this administration must pump up its successes and go full blast with them and stop being so reticent and you need to be much more clear about your successes do not undercut yourself there is a presidential election to be won and by the way a house of representatives when i come back i'll play you president biden's speech almost from the very beginning it will come in i'll come straight to the speech which took place on friday in the oval office at 7 p.m eastern time It was the first speech that President Biden has given from the Oval Office since he's been president, so it was almost two and a half years in the making. But Here, you will hear that speech almost the whole thing. I caught a few seconds and missed it. Uh, Missed a few seconds, but you will have to stick around and listen to this speech. It's a 12-minute speech and you'll hear it right after this. Dear listener, I changed my mind about that. You're going to hear the speech. But before you hear the speech, I want to play this other local moment that took place yesterday on KCBS radio once again. You're going to be hearing from the former San Francisco mayor, Willie Brown, and a political commentator here locally named Phil Matier, M-A-T-I-E-R. Phil Matier, P-H-I-L is his first name. Now, you just got to listen to the way the corporate news media in this country gets you to think about personalities rather than issues. And the childishness of what you're about to hear over the next three minutes is absolutely stupefying. Listen to this.
1: KCBS News Time is 751. We've got Fernie Byer and Corey Smith at the KCBS editor's desk. And in studio, we are joined live by KCBS insider Phil matera and former San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown. Once allies Former President Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis have now become bitter rivals and their ongoing feud reached a new level as they clashed at dueling campaign events last night. Let's hear the name-calling.
2: So, Ron, as I call him, Ron desanctimonious for a reason.
1: <laughs> and San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown, what do you make of that? It's
3: absolutely perfect. As a matter of fact, You recall, in 2016, when he first ran and won the presidential nomination and then the presidency, he was the best
2: Saturday night all week. Yes, he was. He was. And I've got to say, you know, for all of the ups and downs, it's certainly bringing life to Iowa rather than people going around (laughs) and shaking hands. They're slugging each other. You know, but the weird part of all of this is
3: you would think the younger man, the the Harvard graduate and all that nonsense, would be... Up to it. But he does not appear to be anywhere near the match.
2: And at some point, I know Trump is going to say, my man, you're fired. I, you oh. know, I, I, I don't doubt it because that's one of people's, uh, you know, one of the secrets of Donald Trump's success is here's a guy that, you know, is born into wealth. He's been wealthy all his life, but he really can talk like a normal person you know, or the guy down the street. And he can be entertaining. And very entertaining. And that is something we're looking for in Paul, poly- Everybody's looking for. And
3: if I was advising uh, the good governor of Florida, though, I would tell him he should st- stay as quiet and as far away
2: from trash as he can. He is not a trash guy. No, he's not a trash talker. As a matter of fact, when he talks, you you go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, he was
1: actually criticized for not engaging. Let me play a little something. I'm
4: talking about
1: with people. Are you? Blind? Are you blind? What? Are you blind? I'm not blind. Okay, so people are coming up to me, talking me, whatever they want to talk to me about. So not getting off on a good foot with the press.
3: Well, that's the nature of who this guy really is. He is not like ready for prime time in the world of politics. You've really got to be prepared. To go to the black barbershop and get trained.
1: (laughs) What does he need to learn at the
2: barbershop?
3: You got to know how to play the dozens. You know, which is. Got to know how to talk about somebody
2: else's mother and mean it, (laughs) or not halfway mean it. You know, but you know. Meanwhile, while we have Trump and DeSantis, let's not forget. You know, the president. Meanwhile, is you know, you you said before that he's running against himself, which is never a good job. Now he's tripping over himself. That's right. Well, uh, no, Phil. There was a sandbag right
3: in front of him he didn't see it and when he hit the sandbag the sandbag got him yeah that's not unusual I know, but for sandbags May- that get things and people
1: that's going to be on all the ads once we get to that point it's not a good look it's
2: not a good and if there's another one what do you have when there, when there's a second one because you know there's going to be maybe and maybe not who knows what he had to drink <laughs> Oh,
1: boy, we got to leave it there. Uh, Thanks so much. Uh, That is uh, KCBS insider Phil Matera and former San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown.
0: And that, dear listener, is stupid radio. That last three and a half minutes is a doggone embarrassment. That is the level of political engagement now here locally on some radio stations in San Francisco, California. You have the former mayor of this city, Willie Brown, who is a moderate. He's an African-American man. He's a moderate. He was not that popular when he was mayor. He's well-respected here. He used to be an assemblyman in the California Assembly. He used to be on the Board of Supervisors. He's a moderate politician. And he is very popular and well-known. When he was mayor, necessarily, I would think that you know some of his his antics and his anyway i don't want to go into his mayoralty here in the city but that is just disgraceful that whole segment film a is a joke you know he's another moderate slash conservative <sighs> oh that's what everyone wants to see everyone wants entertainment oh at least uh, you know the piece of garbage is he's entertaining and that's what lot everybody wants Not. Everybody like who, Phil? Who wants entertaining politicians? Who wants entertaining fascists? We don't want fascists at all. And all these people, the host and these two men are sitting there laughing it up around two fascists who are destroying the country. One of them is destroying a state. The other one has destroyed the country. And try to overthrow a duly elected Government. And these people are yucking it up on the radio like it's just. uh, Like it's another day in the park. Saturday. In the park. I think it was the 4th of July. Well, it's only the 3rd of June and it is a Saturday. But my goodness me. How childish can these people be on the air at KCBS radio? I guess because your ratings suck that you've got to absolutely go to the lowest common denominator. That was from Friday. Friday morning, that was, that I just played you that audio. That was from Friday morning. And then they're yucking it up. Oh, well, DeSantis. oh, he just, he's just not, he can't keep up with, with the other guy. I'm not going to say his name. Oh, he can't keep up with him. Like, Where's the issues? I don't hear anything about issues anywhere in that three and a half segment. Did you hear any, dear listener? And then then yucking it up about President Biden falling over. Oh, well, you know, he tripped over a sandbag. And oh, well, I wonder how much he had to drink. Ha, 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 ha. It's pathetic. Pathetic. This is not entertainment. This is serious. This is not the kind of garbage we need on the news, KCBS Radio. You must do better. The amount of times that you've screwed up on stories. I've even made notes of how many times you've screwed up on stories. You get people's names wrong. You can't even remember who finished first in the Boston Marathon. And and you're the guys that were covering part of that on your broadcast. And you don't remember... You guys are incompetent. And then you get the former mayor of this town, Willie Brown, talking about the dozens and you has got to go to a black barbershop and insult better. Ron DeSantis. I mean, what is this? This isn't what the viewer or this is not what the listener wants. It's got nothing to do with the issues at stake in these elections. just ridiculous honestly and this occupied three and a half minutes of time that I just played you that you're never ever going to ever get back just absolutely worthless radio radio used to mean something when it came to news and you would turn on the wireless and you'd sit in front of it waiting with bated breath to hear what was to come now You're hearing a bunch of people yucking it up and you're not hearing about the issues that matter to you. No wonder you have to go to people and ask them what they care about. Because obviously the corporate news media doesn't give a shite about that. How can you joke about the president of the United States tripping over a sandbag And then laugh about, well, maybe he had a lot to drink. I don't know how much he drank before. I mean, this is just so inappropriate for radio. And it's not that they didn't curse because they didn't indeed curse. They didn't. But this level of radio is absolutely inappropriate. What are you guys doing? You sound like you're in a frat house. I mean, they could sound as if they were at a bar themselves drinking, talking about this. Because that's where you would hear that kind of talk over a dinner with some socialites or at some meeting. And you'd be in a room or you'd be at a bar. You'd been at a dinner table. And you would joke about stuff like that. Because that's usually what people like this do in power. Oh, did you hear about President Biden, or did you hear the one about this politician or that politician? Oh, yeah, did you know they're sleeping together? Did you know that? She says that he can't do, you know, I don't want to go any further than that. But you get this is how people in power talk when they are not having cameras on them. But apparently, it's not true for Mayor Willie Brown, the former San Francisco mayor, and Phil Mateer who is a commentator who's politically been here and is a political commentator forever. And he's always more, much more of a conservative slant or moderate slant, more conservative slant to whatever he talks about. Now, it's just crazy. I mean, KCBS radio, do better. Please do better. It's pathetic radio. I'm sorry I had to waste your time of it. Now, would I, dear listener, be making fun of any of these fascists if they had tripped over? Yeah, sure, I would uh, have a pop at them. But I would not waste three and a half minutes of this podcast, dear listener, going on about it. I really wouldn't. Because... You can laugh at President Biden all you want. Look, his policies so far, at least in the areas. Look, there's some things he's doing that I definitely don't agree with foreign policy wise. And one or two things domestically. But the bottom line is, let me just say it like this, at least. Bottom line here is that he has accomplished a lot of good things. I talked about the, well, I'm going to talk about now the Infrastructure Act. The Save America, Rescue America Act, you know, the Rescue America Plan, all the rest of these things that have really helped people. The unemployment rate has gone down, although this month, this past month, it went up slightly and a few and there were some more African-Americans, more black people who were unemployed just a little bit more. But the bottom line is, is that the things that President Biden has done, this administration has done in the office have really helped, have helped, but they need to put that message out on blast and it can't just be on social media. You need to have a PR team that's going to stick this information everywhere. Whether it's in newsletters, you stick through someone's door, people's door, you give them one or two pages at max to read because people won't read past a page or two and then their eyes glaze over. That's just the way people are in the United States. Now, some people obviously in the United States would read a lot more than just two pages. But the vast majority of people don't have time to or just don't want to read. They just don't want to. Oh, I can't do it. Just don't or can't do it. Put a flyer in someone's. I know it costs money to do all of this, but put money aside in your budget. Whoever's running the National Party finances and whatever else or locally as well. And put on a flyer all of the accomplishments thus far of this Biden administration. So that everybody knows, stick it through their mailbox, get, a, get that to happen and, not, and do that for everyone so that people understand what this guy is doing and what this admin he is running is doing. They're doing a lot of good things. Now go out there and be your own best messenger, not your worst. Without further ado, dear listener, I present to you from Friday night. President Joe Biden from the Oval Office, the first Oval Office address of his presidency. He's talking about the debt ceiling extension bill, and he is going to be signing it into law today. You will hear that during the speech. Other than that, I won't give anything more away.
5: The bipartisanship are over, and the Democrats and Republicans can no longer work together. But I refuse to believe that. Because America can never give in to that way of thinking, you know, the only way American democracy can function is through compromise and consensus, and that 's what I work to do as your president. you know, to forge bipartisan agreement where it 's possible and where it 's needed i 've signed more than three hundred and fifty bipartisan laws thus far in almost two and a half years, including the historic law that rebuilding America so that we can rank number one in the world in infrastructure instead of where we're now number 13 in the world. Another historic law, rebuilding our manufacturing base so that we'll lead the world once again in making semiconductor chips so much more, and so many more, and so many more sophisticated ones. And now, a bipartisan budget agreement. This is vital because, because it's essential to the progress we've made over the last few years is keeping full faith and credit of the United States of America and passing a budget that continues to grow our economy and reflects our values as a nation. That's why I'm speaking tonight, to report on the crisis averted and what we're doing to protect America's future. Passing this budget agreement was critical. The stakes could not have been higher. If we had failed to reach an agreement on the budget, there were extreme voices threatening to take America for the first time in our 247-year history into default on our national debt. Nothing, nothing would have been more irresponsible. Nothing would have been more catastrophic. Our economy would have been thrown into recession. Retirement accounts for millions of Americans would have been decimated. Eight million Americans would have lost their jobs. Default would have been, have destroyed our nation's credit rating, which would have made everything from mortgages to car loans to funding for the government much more expensive. And it would have taken years to climb out of that hole. And America's standing as the most trusted, reliable financial partner in the world would have been shattered. So it was critical to reach an agreement. And it's very good news for the American people. No one got everything they wanted, but the American people got what they needed. We averted an economic crisis, an economic collapse. We're cutting spending and bringing the deficits down at the same time. We're protecting important priorities from Social Security to Medicare to Medicaid to veterans to our transformational investments in infrastructure and clean energy. I want to commend Senator Speaker McCarthy, you know, uh, he and I, uh, we uh, and our teams we were able to get along, get things done. We were straightforward with one another, completely honest with one another, respectful with one another. Both sides operated in good faith. Both sides kept their word. I also want to commend other congressional leaders, House Minority Leader Jeffries, Senate Majority Leader Schumer, Senate Minority Leader McConnell. They acted responsibly and put the good of the country ahead of politics. The final vote in both chambers was overwhelming, far more bipartisan than anyone thought was possible. So I want to thank the members of Congress who voted to pass this agreement, which I'm going to sign tomorrow and become the law. So here's what the deal does. First, it cuts spending. And over the next 10 years, the deficit will be cut by more than $1 trillion. And that will be on top of the record $1.7 trillion, $1.7 trillion. I already cut the deficit in my first two years in office. And it's clear, we're all on a much more fiscally responsible course than the one I inherited when I took office four years ago. When I came to office, The deficit had increased every year the previous four years. And nearly $8 trillion was added to the national debt in the last administration. And now we're turning things around, and that's good for America. You know, my dad used to have an expression. He said, Joey, don't tell me what you value. Show me your budget. I'll tell you what you value. That's at the heart of this debate. What do we value? Protecting seniors. You may remember, during my State of the Union address, there there was a spirit exchange between me and a few Republicans spontaneously occurring on the floor of the House of Representatives. I was pointing out that for years, some of them were putting forward proposals to cut Social Security and Medicare. And some of them that night took exception, and they said very loudly that that wasn't true. So I asked them on the floor that night, I said, ask them a simple question. Will you agree not to cut Social Security, not to cut Medicare? Would they agree to protect these essential programs? They're a lifeline for millions of Americans. Programs that these Americans have been paying into every single paycheck they've earned since they started working. And that provides so much peace of mind. With the bright lights and cameras on, those few Republicans who were protesting, they agreed. They said they wouldn't cut it. That's how we protected Social Security and Medicare, from the beginning, and from a being cut period. Healthcare was another priority for me, a top priority. I made it clear from the outset, I would not agree to any cuts in Medicaid, another essential lifeline for millions of Americans, including children in poverty, the elderly in nursing homes, and Americans living with disabilities. The original House Republican proposal would have cut healthcare for up to 21 million Americans on Medicaid. I said no, and Medicare is protected, and so are millions of people most in need. Look, I've long believed that the only one truly sacred obligation that the government has is to prepare those we send into harm's way and care for them and their families when they come home and when they don't come home. That's why my last budget provided VA hospitals with additional funding more doctors, nurses, and equipment to accommodate the needs of veterans and more appointments. The House Republican plan would have met 30 fewer million VA healthcare visits for our veterans. We didn't let that happen. In addition, this bill fully funds the Bipartisan PACT Act, the most significant law in decades for veterans exposed to toxic burn pits and for their families. It expands access to those veterans and their families to health care and to disability benefits. Look, we're investing in America, and our people, and in our future. We've created over 13 million new jobs, nearly 800,000 manufacturing jobs. Where is it written that America can't lead the world again in manufacturing? Unemployment is at 3.7 percent. More Americans are working today than ever in the history of this country. And inflation has dropped 10 straight months in a row. In this debate, I refuse to put what was responsible for all this economic progress on the chopping block. This bipartisan agreement protects the law that will help us build the best infrastructure in the world. It fully protects the Chips and Science Act, which is going to bring key parts of our supply chain to America so we don't have to rely on others, like semiconductors, Those tiny computer chips, smaller than the tip of your finger, that affect nearly everything we rely on, from cell phones, to building automobiles, to the most sophisticated weapon systems, and so much more. We protected another law that I passed and signed last year that finally beat Big Pharma, which I've been trying to do for over 30 years. It finally gives Medicare the power to negotiate lower drug prices, just like the VA's been able to do for veterans. This law has already dramatically cut the cost of insulin for seniors. From as much as $400 a month to just $35 a month for insulin. Negotiating lower drug prices not only saves seniors a lot of money, it saves the country a lot of money. $160 billion that's not having to be paid out because drug prices are more rational. We pay the highest drug prices of any industrial nation in the world. And it's just the beginning. You know, we also protected the most significant breakthrough ever, ever, in dealing with the existential threat of climate change. Today, new wind and solar power is cheaper than fossil fuel. Since I've been in office, clean energy and advanced manufacturing have brought in $470 billion in private investments. It's going to create thousands of jobs, good-paying jobs, all across this country and help the environment at the same time. Remember, at the beginning of this debate, some of my Republican colleagues were determined to gut the clean energy investments. I said, no, we kept them all. And there's there's so much more to do. We're going to do even more to reduce the deficit. We need to control spending if we're going to do that. But we also have to raise revenue and go after tax cheats and make sure everybody's paying their fair share. No one, I promise, no one making less than $400,000 a year will pay a penny more in federal taxes. But like most of you at home, I know the federal tax system isn't fair. That's why I kept my commitment, again, that no one earning less than $400,000 a year will pay a penny more in federal taxes. That's why last year I secured more funding to go more IRS funding to go after wealthy tax cheats. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, and it is nonpartisan, says that this bill will bring in $150 billion, and other outside experts expect that it would save as much as $400 billion because it's forcing people to pay their fair share. Republicans may not like it, but I'm going to make sure the wealthy pay their fair share. I'm also proposed closing over a dozen special interest tax loopholes for big oil, crypto traders, hedge fund billionaires, saving taxpayers billions of dollars. Republicans defended every single one of these special interest loopholes. Every single one. But I'm going to be coming back. And with your help, I'm going to win. Right now, catch this. Right now, the average billionaire in America pays just 8% in federal taxes. 8%. Teachers and firefighters pay more than that. That's why I proposed the minimum tax for billionaires. Republicans are against it, but I'm going to keep fighting for it. No billionaire should pay less in federal taxes than a teacher or a firefighter. Look, let me close with this. I know bipartisanship is hard and unity is hard, but we can never stop trying. Because in moments like this one, the ones we just faced, where the American economy and the world economy is at risk of collapsing. There's no other way. No matter how tough our politics gets, we need to see each other not as adversaries, but as fellow Americans. Treat each other with dignity and respect to join forces as Americans to stop shouting, lower the temperature, and work together to pursue progress, secure prosperity, and keep the promise of America for everybody. As I've said in my inaugural address, without unity, there is no peace, only bitterness and fury. And we can never become that country. I can honestly say, I can honestly say to you tonight, that I've never been more optimistic about America's future. We just need to remember who we are. We are the United States of America. And there's nothing, nothing we can't do when we do it together thank you all for listening, taking the time tonight to listen to me. May God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Thank you.
0: President Biden there in his first address from the Oval Office since he became president in January of 2021. It was a good speech, and it was really a campaign speech. Let's have that absolutely right felt very much like a fireside chat at the same time. And it was absolutely a salvo fired at the Republicans. He knows that it's political season. It's always political season. He knows, though, it's election season next year, but the the ramp up to it begins now. And with the two fascists who are jockeying for position and others joining this race every day, it seems, you know, President Biden is... um, making it very clear that uh, he's accomplishing things. And that's what all of this is, and we'll see what happens. But the bottom line, dear listener, is that President Biden, you know, when he spoke on Friday, you just heard him there, but when he spoke, that was Friday night, and he didn't say anything about what this debt uh, death, death ceiling extension doesn't give. It doesn't... Um, give really enough amnesty to students who have loan payments to make, it doesn't uh, it, it does not chase down wealthy tax cheats and the IRS does not chase them down and then there's a number of other things that is just abominable about this debt saving bill including this MW pipeline situation that Senator Jeff Merkley had some words on earlier in the week, I mean it was just, it's just really bad stuff and Look, obviously you don't want to default and that's the argument you'll hear all day from anyone who voted for this bill but the bottom line for me is that you are going to be putting so much more burden on poor individuals to fill the void and when you're doing that already knowing what the situation is it doesn't make for very good reading and it just makes things very, very difficult and so no one really has the trust and so you know that is just how it looks to me as i listen to that with you dear listener i mean that is just not good stuff it's just very poor and you know again we have to see what happens next and um you know i I just i just think that there's a lot of people that will have to um i don't know i i just think that this is Um, we have to be better than this stuff. We really do. And it's just not happening the way, you know, we have to be better at being messengers and we're just not doing that at the minute. We're just not.
6: It doesn't happen like we think it does. No one rolls the tanks. No armies meet in pitched battle. It happens quietly, little by little. And because so many think it can't happen, it does happen. Little by little, the rules change. It doesn't seem shocking or sudden, and that's the point. Fewer places to vote, longer lines. Don't worry, they say, we're just improving the system. They hope we won't notice the rules are changing because they lost the last election. They hope we just won't care enough to stop them. They believe they can take America away from us, and we won't even notice. We know who they are. We know what they want. The question is, who are we? Do we let them get away with it, or do we fight? Democracy is on the ballot. Vote while your vote still counts. The Lincoln Project is responsible for the content of this advertising.
0: Welcome back. Now you're going to hear two speeches that I think are very much different or fairly different to what you just heard from President Biden. Both Reverend William J. Barber and Democratic Senator Bernie Sanders are on the trail, really, um, going from place to place. Um, and, well, you're going to hear a speech now um, from Reverend Barber and both Reverend Barber and Bernie Sanders, the senator, were in Tennessee. And so um, there was also Justin Jones who spoke at the rally. Um, But um, here's where things are just very difficult. And, well, they could be potentially, but I just want to play you this young man who I think is... um, He's just terrific, he's tremendous And he's not very, I wouldn't say he's young young But he is fairly young Reverend William Barber um, For the next 20 plus minutes or so Will be speaking And you really need to listen to what he has to say You really do
7: Well it looks like The South has risen And But I don't know if this microphone has You are witnessing a third reconstruction, good, you're witnessing the third reconstruction right now. And the reason why there's so much resistance, would you hold this, reason why there's so much resistance is because they used to say in South Africa, only a dying mule kicks the hardest. When Senator Sanders called and asked me would I join him in a nation tour, starting in the South, the answer was a quick yes. He said, Pastor, I need you to do some teaching about why this is a moral issue. And I want to start tonight from two texts from the Bible. In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah said, woe unto him or her. Who builds their palace by unrighteousness. His upper rooms by injustice. Making his own people work for nothing. And not paying them for their labor. Isaiah 10 says, Woe unto those who legislate evil. And rob the poor of their rights. And make women and children their prey. Jesus in his first sermon said, You must preach good news to the poor. And the word poor In Greek, is patokos. It means those who've been made poor by economic exploitation. And then later in the epistles, it simply says the laborer is worthy of their hire. Would you say that? The laborer is worthy of their hire, of their money. In every age, moral people have had to rise up and decide to make the moral case that things have to change and injustice has to move. Our national constitution, flawed as it may be from the beginning, but it does say that we must establish justice. It says nothing about poverty wages. And poverty wages are not establishing justice. Poverty wages establish injustice. Our Declaration of Independence says that When there has been a long train of abuses, it is the very duty of the people, their right, to overthrow that government and provide a new government. I come to tell you that low wages and refusal to pay people a living wage is a form of political abuse. Our federal government has not raised the minimum wage in 14 years. During the pandemic, we called low wage workers essential, but refused to pay them a living wage, refused to get them paid sick leave, refused to give them health care. We treated them like they were expendable. We said, yes, yes, you're essential. But then we treated them like they're expendable while corporate profits rose. And CEO pays continue to rise. And Congress over these years have given themselves a raise. The Constitution of this state, you ought to read it sometimes. I'm convinced many of the people in your state house, they haven't. The Constitution of this state makes it clear That our liberty depends on people who decide things have to change. And injustice has to move. It says in Article 1, Section 2, that the government being instituted for the common benefit, the doctrine of non-resistance against arbitrary power and oppression is absurd. What that means, if folk are using government to step on you and you don't fight back, then you are sillier than they are. And so in every age, there comes a time when people have to rise and decide things have to change and injustice has to move. In 1935, amidst the Great Depression and labor strikes and the Harlem riots, Langston Hughes turned his pen into a moral instrument. And a weapon to fight injustice. And he wrote these words Oh, let America be America again, the land that has never been yet and yet must be, the land where every man is free, the land that is mine, the poor man, the Indians, the Negro, me, who made America, whose sweat in blood, whose faith in pain, whose hand at the foundry, and whose plow at the rains. Oh, yes, I say it plain America has never been America to me, but I swear this oath that America will be. Yeah. Langston Hughes. Langston Hughes knew what we must know now, that in every age, a moral people have to rise up and decide to make the moral case that things have to change. They have to change. Have to change. And injustice has to move. In the face of unchecked greed and inequality in the Gilded Age, Mother Jones, who traveled Tennessee and Kentucky and West Virginia, she was asked about why she fought so hard for union rights and for wages. And she said, you mourn the dead, but you fight like hell for the living. Right. When Frances Perkins, when Francis Perkins was labor secretary under FDR, she pushed him until Franklin Delano Roosevelt said at a fireside chat, no business which depends for its existence on paying less than a living wage to its workers has any right in this, could even continue in this country. Did you know that at the march on Washington, they were fighting for a $2 minimum wage, which indexed by inflation would be 15 to 17 today? Did you know that the night before Dr. King was shot, standing up for wages, standing up for for garbage workers and sanitation workers. He said these words, nothing would be more tragic than for us to turn back now. And then he said, look, I'm a preacher. It's all right to talk about long, white robes over yonder and all of its symbolism. But ultimately, people want some suits and dresses and shoes down here. It's all right to talk about streets flowing with honey and milk over there. But God wants to do something about the slums and the poverty communities right down here. So whether, so whether through the testimony of Scripture, our Constitution, or the witness of justice servant leaders down through history, I've come to make it clear that minimum living wages aren't a far-left idea. A living wage is a fundamental moral issue. It's not about left versus right conservative versus liberal and moderate is simply about right versus wrong. Now, there are a lot of lies out here. And we have to challenge the lies that are used to block living wages. The Nobel Peace Prize in economics a couple of years ago went to three economists who demonstrated with empirical data. Somebody say empirical data because you don't want to be loud and wrong. (laughs) Empirical data. And they found out that raising the minimum wage to a living wage doesn't cost jobs, doesn't raise prices. In fact, more cash in the hands of working people actually helps the economy rather than tells it down. We got to take on the lives. Down here in the South, it's wrong. That down here in the South, far too many politicians still use cultural wars to pit white workers against workers of color. And while they're pitting folk against one another, 50% of all workers in the South make less than a living wage. Don't fall for the tricks. Don't fall for the diversions. Don't fall for the deflections. You see, in the South, Dr. King said in Alabama, he said, The greatest fear of the Southern oligarchy is that the masses of poor Negroes and poor white folk would get together and form a political voting bloc that would fundamentally change the economic architecture of the country. But for what we are seeing today, it's not Trumpism. For the past 50 years, the Southern strategy has been used to use cultural wedge issues To pit white folk against black folk and brown folk and straight folk and gay folk and immigrants. They called it positive polarization. They actually said if we get caught, lie and say we didn't do it. But positive polarization. But what we've got to realize in this time now is that the same folk that are taking our voting rights are also blocking our living wages. The same folk that are denying our health care are also blocking our living wages. The same folk attacking the LGBTQ community is taking our living wages. The same folk trying to tell women what to do with their body are taking their wages. And we have got to decide if they are cynical enough to be together, we got to be smart enough to come together. And the South is key. Look around this room. The South. It's not really made up of red states or blue states. The South is a deliberately unorganized state, a deliberately divided state, but that's changing. That's why Senator Sanders is right to come south and make the case for living wage. One third of the nation's poor live in the South. One third of all poor white people live in the South. It's wrong that greedy people on Wall Street have gotten bailouts while many of you have gotten locked up when you simply stood for a living wage. It's wrong. It's wrong that the law still allows tipped workers to be $2.15 an hour, which is nothing but an extension of slave labor into the service industry. So whether whatever kind of worker you are, we say living wages now. we need moral clarity. Somebody say moral clarity. We got to cut through the neoliberal deceptions and the trickle-down deceptions and the moderate deceptions. Dr. King one time said moderates were the greatest enemies to the movement because they're more interested in order than they are in justice. And we have to cut through the lie that full employment is the answer because slavery was full employment. When you have a lot of low-wage jobs being given to people, that is a moral contradiction. Low-wage jobs and full employment when you're you're working but you're not being paid. The moral priorities of extremists are so off that just last night they argue to the whole world that the way to save the world's economy and the nation's economy is to kick needy people off a of food stamp. What a disgrace. We've got a moral crisis. And finally, low wages are not just wrong. They are deadly. Listen to me now. Did you know that 800, 700 people were dying a day, 800 people were dying a day before COVID from poverty. Poverty, during COVID, the poor died at a rate three to five times higher, whether you're in a poor white community or a poor black community. Not because COVID killed them, but because of all of the ways in which they did not have things or access because they were poor. Did you know that 330,000 people died during COVID, not from COVID, but from the lack of health insurance? And America is the only of the 25 wealthiest nation that doesn't offer some form of universal health care. A research team led by David Brady of the University of California, Riverside, broke the news last month. Poverty is the fourth leading cause of death in America. It's, It's greater than homicide. It's greater than diabetes greater than respiratory diseases and it's greater than gun violence and that's why it's so bad when preachers get up and try to justify injustice because what they really are doing is saying so much about what God says so little and so little about what God says so much seven a 725 poverty waves is a death wave. And when you refuse to raise the living wage, you are engaging in policy murder. People are beyond frustrated. Things have to change. No longer can we accept that before COVID, there were 140 million poor and low wealth people in this country, 43% of adults, 53% of children, 26 million black people, 66 million white people, 73 million women, 68% of Latinos. More than 40 million workers making less than $15 an hour. We need living wages now. 46, 46% of all the people in Tennessee are poor and or low income. That's 3 million people, 56% of your children, 48% of women, 1.6 million, 61% people of color, 1.1 million, 41% of white people in Tennessee, 2 million people. So workers, don't let up, make them hear you, make them see you, make them feel your power. This is not about Democrat versus Republican. This is about doing right. And the right time to do right is right now. Oh, hallelujah. This is not even about black versus white. Versus brown, versus Asian, or versus native. Because when you make a poverty wage and you can't pay your light bill, we all black in the dark. When your child can't eat, they don't cry black. They don't cry white. They don't cry Asian. They cry hunger. We cannot allow corporate greed and political sellouts to tear the soul of this nation apart. This is our moral fight. We are fighting to save the nation's soul and the nation's substance. And it should have already taken place. Senator Sanders put it on the table during the pandemic, made the case. 49 Republicans and two Democrats voted to block nearly 50 million people frontline workers from getting healthcare. Let me tell you who they blocked. Healthcare workers, protective service workers, some cops, some fire people, cashiers, grocery, uh, delivery drivers, machinists, merchandise store, restaurant workers, educators, food processors, sanitation workers. They blocked all of them. But my brothers and sisters, there's a message in all of that. If all of us get together, it's time. And the people have got to rise and decide that things have to change. It's time for things to change, and it's time for justice to make a move. Did you know that poor and low-wealth people now make up 30% of the electorate, Justin, in this country? And in the states where the margin of victory was within 3%, poor and low-wealth people make up 43% of the electorate. In fact, there's not a state in the South where if 25% of poor and low-income people who haven't voted in the past would choose to come together and say that things have to change and vote their power, that they couldn't determine every office in that state. And so it's time to fight now. It's time for living wages now until families don't have to choose between rent and medicine. Living wages now. Until people can know that they'll be all right. Living wages now. Is there anybody with me? You better understand, America. We're going to lobby in the halls of Congress now. If we gotta lay down in the streets and in the halls of Congress to get the job done. We're going to do it now. We're going to turn out in record numbers at the polls because it's now is the time. No more excuses. Say it. No more more workers rejected. No more more families hurt. hurt. Living wages. wages. Now. Now. Now let me close by telling you who you are. Harry Belafonte died, but he left us with a song. And it ought to become one of the songs of this movement. The song says, we are the wave. It says, the sea will wash against the rock and the rock stands strong. The sea will wash against the rock and the rock stands strong. But before too long, the rock is gone. The wind will blow against the stone, and the stone will stand strong. The wind will blow against the stone, but before too long, the stone is gone. Patience, gentlemen. Patience, sisters. The stone will soon give away. You know who you are? We are the flow. We are the wind, and soon the rock must go. We are the way. We are the wind, and soon the rock must go. We are the way. We are the wind and soon the stone must go. What rock, what stone? The stone of injustice, the stone of voter suppression, the stone of low wages, the stone of denial of health care. You know who you are? We are the wind. We are the wave. We have the power. Soon, if we stay together. Soon, if we organize together. Soon, if we vote together, black and white and Latino and Asian and Native and poor and gay and straight, we are the wind. We are the wave. We are the wind. We are the wave. And soon, 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 the rock must go. Forward together! Forward together! Forward together! Forward together!
0: Now that speech from Reverend William Barber was really good, a very important speech, and one thing that he said that I've been talking about a lot is it's not about left versus right, and it's not about Republicans versus Democrats. It's about what's right and what is wrong. And you heard the Reverend William J. Barber talk about that. We've got to stop looking at party affiliations and start looking at, obviously, you vote out the Republicans, obviously. But we've got to stop thinking in those terms of, in terms of, oh, the Republicans versus the Democrats. We've got to look at what's right and what's wrong. And you know what the difference is between white and wrong, dear listener. Between white and wrong. (laughs) Dear listener, welcome back And now the final portion of this podcast episode Yesterday, Bernie Sanders, the senator out of Vermont Also gave a speech at the rally um, To raise the wage of workers That's really what that rally was all about I didn't say it earlier, but I'm saying it now Here now for the next 25 minutes and change is the senator out of Vermont, the Democratic senator, Bernie Sanders.
4: Thank you, Nashville. Let me thank all of you for coming out this evening. This is a wonderful turnout, and we appreciate you being here. Let me Let me thank the many thousands of people all across this country who are looking at you right now on live stream. Let me thank representative. Let me thank the musicians Sam Lewis and Allison Russell. Let me thank Alona Royale, Sam Lewis Honey Hearth Representative Justin Jones And let me thank one of the great fighters for social justice in this country Reverend William Barber The reason that we are here tonight uh, is not complicated. In the richest country in the history of the world, we demand an economy that works for all, not just the few. We demand an economy that is based on justice, and you just heard the Reverend speak about the history of the struggle for justice, that's what we want. And we want an economy that is not based on the extraordinarily level of greed, uncontrollable greed that we see today. You know, in Vermont, and I am sure in Tennessee and all over this country, we have a serious problem with addiction. We have drug addiction and alcohol addiction, tobacco addiction, we have all kinds of addiction. But maybe the most egregious addiction of all is that our ruling class is seething with greed. They cannot get enough. Five billion in wealth is not enough. Ten billion, they don't know how to spend their money. As you know, some of them now, after they buy their islands and they buy their personal planes, they're now off to Mars and out of space. They don't know how to spend their money while 600,000 Americans are homeless. We demand an economy that understands that health care is a human right, not a privilege. We demand a health care system whose goal is not to make tens of billions for drug companies and insurance companies, but to provide quality health care to every man, woman, and child in this country. We want a health care system in which every American can walk into a doctor's office whenever he or she is ill and not worry about the bill, can go to a hospital, not worry about coming out bankrupt. Now, some people may tell you, some people may tell you it's a radical idea. It exists in virtually every major country on earth. If Europe can do it, if Canada can do it, you know what? United States of America can do it as well. We demand an economy in which all of our people can live in decent, affordable housing. Wherever I go, in my state of Vermont or all over this country, what I hear is people simply cannot afford housing. that true here? Okay, well, it's true in Vermont as well. And communities cannot even attract the nurses or the firemen or the cops that they need because there is no affordable housing. So maybe, just maybe, instead of spending tens of billions more on the military. How about building the affordable housing that we need? We demand an economy, we demand an economy that makes sure the elderly in our society can retire with dignity. Half of older Americans have nothing in the bank as they approach retirement. And you got some geniuses out there talking about cutting Social Security. Well, we're not going to cut Social Security. We're going to expand Social Security benefits. And understanding what Tennessee and Nashville have recently gone through, we demand a society in which we have sensible gun safety legislation. You know, I go around my state a lot. I go around the state of Vermont a lot and I go into a lot of schools. And it is almost unspeakable, and I frankly, it's one of the issues I I don't like talking about because it is so horrific and so painful, but you go to schools and kids go through all of these exercises in terms of what will happen if there's a shooter in a school. Can you imagine all over this country, it used to be that you went to school, it was a safe place, secure place, now kids are scared to death about unspeakable crimes. So we have got to have the courage to stand up to right-wing extremists, do what the American people want, that is sensible gun safety legislation. And as Reverend Barbara said so effectively, we are here today to state as emphatically as we can that in the year 2023, no one in America should be forced to work for starvation wages. I don't care where you are in America. I don't care if you're in the South, the North, the East, the West. You can't make it on seven and a quarter an hour. You can't make it on nine bucks an hour. You can't make it on 11 or 12 bucks an hour. We need, in Congress, to pass a minimum wage bill, which has a livable wage. And as the chairman of the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee, which has jurisdiction over this issue, with you... And with the American people, we're going to do everything we can to raise that minimum wage to at least 17 bucks an hour. Now, in my view, we can no longer, and I appreciate so much Reverend Barber putting all of this into a moral context. It's not political, it's not economic. It is moral. It is not moral when the billionaires get richer and working families struggle to put food on the table. And here is the reality and I want you all to know it because you do know it. We don't talk about it enough. We don't talk about it in Congress. We don't talk about it in the corporate media. But here is the truth, and that is for the people on top, the economy today in America has never ever been better. They have never had it so good. But for working class people, in many instances, our people are falling further and further behind as they struggle to pay their grocery bills, their rent, their health care bills. Today in America, and we don't talk about it very much, but it's time that we do. We have more income and wealth inequality now than ever before. Now, you tell me the morality, the decency of three people on top owning more wealth than the bottom half of American society, 165 million people. How much do they need? How many homes do they need? How many islands do they need to buy Where children in America go hungry? Today, while nearly 18 million American families are paying more than 50% of their limited incomes on housing. You all know those folks, right? There you go. And nearly 600,000 Americans are homeless. The top 1% own more wealth than the bottom 90%. Today, while millions of ordinary workers are working longer hours for lower wages, the CEOs of the largest corporations now earn 400 times more than the people they employ. 400 times! (coughs) And that is the largest CEO worker differential in the history of this country. When I was a kid, it was 20, 30 to one, you know, CEOs always made more money than workers, nothing new about that. 20, 30, 50 to one, now it is 400 times. And I want to tell you something else that is not talked about in Congress or in the media. And that is since 1975, there has been a massive redistribution of wealth. You know, you hear our corporate friends, they're worried how terrible it is to redistribute wealth. Well, guess what? In the last 50 years, there has been a massive redistribution of wealth, but it's gone the wrong way. Over the past 50 years, more than $50 trillion in wealth has been redistributed from the bottom 90% to the top 1%. You got that? $50 trillion from the bottom to the top. Now today in America, and I'm sure I don't have to tell this to anybody here, 60% of our workers are living paycheck to paycheck. I grew up in a family that lived paycheck to paycheck. Many of us today, many of you are living paycheck to paycheck. And I'll tell you what that means. Reverend Barber touched on it because we don't talk about it enough. It means that every single day when you live paycheck to paycheck, when you are worried if you're going to be able to afford rent, when you're scared to death that if your car breaks down, you can't get to work, you're going to get fired when you're worried if your kid gets sick, how are you going to afford a medical bill? And if God forbid somebody ends up in the hospital, how are you going to pay a $50,000 bill? People are worried and stressed out. And you know what the doctors tell us? Stress kills. Living paycheck to paycheck leaves you with no sense of security. you got to hustle, you got to worry every single day. It takes a toll on your mind, it takes a toll on your body. You have no cushion to fall back on, no quality time to spend with your family where you can relax and not worry about what tomorrow is going to bring. And the result of all of this is rather incredible. We don't talk about it. It is that not only in America is life expectancy in general going down, The differential in years between working class and low-income people and the rich is growing wider. Poverty is a death sentence. Poverty is a death sentence. And we are standing here this evening to say we will no longer accept that. It is no great secret that here in Tennessee, or in Vermont, or any place else the American people are angry. And sometimes, unfortunately, people are taking out their anger in a bad direction. Well, if you're angry out there, you have a right to be angry. But take it out on the people who are causing your family miserable misery, not your co-workers. Don't take it out on people because their skin color is different than yours. Or their sexual orientation is different than yours. Take that anger out on those greedy people on top who want it all at the expense of all working people. And one of the reasons that people are so angry has to do with the reality that the average worker in our country, I want you all to hear this, makes $50 a week less than he or she did 50 years ago after adjusting for inflation think about that for a moment all of you have experienced all of the impacts of automation of computer technology of all of the explosions in technology that we have seen which make each and every worker in this room more productive and yet after all of that increase in productivity millions of workers are falling further and further behind. When all is said and done, real weekly wages for the average American worker today is lower than they were in 1973. Can you believe it? And that's the struggle that we have. Now, there are a lot of things that we have got to do, but at the top of the list is saying very clearly that if you are working 40 hours a week, you are not living in poverty. You've got to raise that minimum wage to $17 an hour. It is not acceptable that today, in the richest country in the history of the world, nearly 35 million American workers make less than $17 an hour and it is a national disgrace. And as a member of Congress, I'm embarrassed to tell you, Congress has not passed an increase in the minimum wage since 2007, 16 years ago. Can you believe that? Think of what's happened in the last 16 years, Congress has not raised the minimum wage. So yes, together we are gonna raise The minimum wage to a living wage, because in this country a job should lift you out of poverty, not keep you in it. And one of the points I want to make to you this evening. Is that all of the ideas that I've been talking about, that Reverend Barber talked about, you know, our opponents, all of these are radical ideas, unheard of. Yeah. These are ideas that the American people believe in, that they want. Yes. We are not the extremists. They are the extremists in denying what the American people want. In poll, in poll after poll, the American people make it clear they want the minimum wage raised here in Tennessee, in Vermont, all over this country. But it is not just the polls. As a result of congressional inaction, cities and states all across this country are taking the low wage crisis into their own hands. Congress is not acting to their credit, cities and states are, and raising the minimum wage. In November of last year, nearly 60% of the people in Nebraska, Nebraska, my friends, is not considered a progressive state. 60% of the people in Nebraska, a state with a Republican governor and two Republican senators, voted to raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. And we all know about Florida and their wonderful governor. In November of 2020, 61% of the people in Florida voted to raise the minimum wage in that state to 15 bucks an hour. Today, 13 states have approved a $15 an hour minimum wage. And you know what? As a result of inflation, $15 an hour back in 2021 would be over $17 an hour today. So $17 is not a radical idea. According to MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, a living wage for working adults in Tennessee is $17.56 an hour. That is what an individual in a household must earn to support his or her family. So the time is long overdue for us to raise the minimum wage and together. We will do just that. And while we deal with the federal minimum wage, we must also address the scandal of the tipped wage, which has been stuck at $2.13 an hour for more than 30 years. Think it's time for a raise there? Uh, The restaurant lobby and the big-money interest want to make sure that waitresses and waiters, people who work in restaurants, other service industries, earn starvation wages. We're going to stand up to them. We're going to raise that tip wage to the wage it should be. Brothers and sisters, the biggest impediment we face to change it's not just the billions of dollars that big money interests put into politics in our corrupt political system. That's a real problem. It's not the biggest problem. Biggest problem is not just employers trying to break unions. That's a big problem. It's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem that we have gets back to something that Nelson Mandela said a long time ago. And he said that everything seems impossible right. until it happens yes. in other words what the system what the moneyed interest what the establishment wants you to believe is you're powerless power. they got all the money they got all the power they own the media they could take your job and ship it to china tomorrow you got nothing and what we are here to say Reverend Barbara made this point better than I do, is that when they divide us up, they win. When we stand together, black and white and Latino, Native American, Asian American, when we stand together as working people, gay and straight. At the end of the day, The 1% is very powerful. I would not deny that for a moment. I am not a mathematician, but I do know that 99% is a hell of a bigger number than 1%. And I'm here this evening in Nashville because I don't believe in the concept of red state or blue state. I really don't believe it. I believe that when working people come together every state in this country could be a state of justice. So let me thank all of you here in Tennessee because I know the politics are difficult. I do know that. And I know it's hard to stand up for justice. But I thank you all and I applaud what you're doing. Let's go forward together. Let's transform this country. Thank you very much.
0: sounds as if he's campaigning doesn't he that speech was really good it was on point this is exactly what we need and he's going to be doing this and this tour that they're doing barbara and bernie across the country is one that we do need and we need to do this ourselves as well Uh, bernie sounded like a candidate there didn't he and he sounded like he sounded in 2016 and 2020 And he is not running anymore and he is trying now to infect and infuse a run for the White House again in the guise of someone else. That's really what's going on here. Well, We'll see how it goes. I thought that speech was very important. So was the speech that William Barber gave the Reverend William Barber. And that is really all you need to know. President Biden's speech was good as well. It was a very good political speech also. And um, I think it was the reason why you don't see the office of the Oval office being used sparingly is be being used often is for these moments. I thought President Biden played his hand very well indeed. But the reality is that that debt ceiling bill has some very unpleasant things in it for people who can't fend for themselves because they are in a position of being locked out or at least being, um, you know, they're in a position that's not good for them. And, you know, we need to have a better society, dear listener, and we need to have voter participation, dear listener, and we need to have people who care about these processes because a lot of people end up getting hurt. Follow along on Twitter at thepopcornreel and on spoutable, S-P-O-U-T-I-B-L-E dot com forward slash popcornreel. Thank you very much for listening. This edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore.